It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Vax Talk podcast. This is the podcast for people who aren't afraid of autistic people, which should be everyone, but, you know, there's people who are. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. We've got a great episode for you today. We're going to be talking to Dr. Peter Hotez from Texas Children and Baylor Medical School. And he is the author of a new book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. He doesn't leave any wiggle room in that. He's very definitive about it. It's a wonderful book about his daughter, Rachel, um, who is autistic and has intellectual disabilities and other disabilities. And it's also about the science behind vaccines and how we know that they have nothing to do with autism. And everybody, I think this book is just released. Is that correct, Karen? Do you know what the release date is? You know, so Nathan and I got um, pre-release copies, Mm -hmm. but I think it did just come out. So please go and buy it. This is my recommendation, that you go and buy it and that you read it. And then that you gift it to your pediatrician's office and ask them to keep it in their waiting room. That's a great idea. We've it already is. got our call to action. Look at that. <laughs> there check we go. box. Box checked. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go ahead and start around the web. Do Alrighty. you go first? Yeah, I'll go first. I am just skimming the article that I've heard about the, over the last week. So, you know, we talk a lot about... Um, you know, neither one of us, I'm trying to figure out how to frame this, but neither one of us are pro-pharmaceutical company, right? We're very pro-vaccines in terms of right. when we know that vaccines are safe and effective, uh, then we want to make sure that everybody gets them. We want to make sure that vaccines are safe and effective. That doesn't mean that we are always in favor of pharmaceutical companies. In fact, we're very critical of them when it is uh, warranted. And so this is one case where I think a critical eye is warranted. So there's a recent story. This was from this is NPR on November 1st. The headline is Merck pulls out of agreement to supply life-saving vaccine to millions of kids. And the concern here is that uh, Merck and company is ending, I'm kind of summarizing passages here, but ending a long-term agreement to supply rotavirus vaccine for children in West Africa. And they said that it, you know, there's kind of this uh, statement from the company that says they were expressed their deepest regret to all the parties involved and they said something about not being able to meet uh, that they had supply constraints but at the same time they are start they've started sending the vaccine to china where it's being sold for a much higher price so um this is very very disheartening uh for uh people who have seen rotavirus in action uh we know that in the united states rotavirus usually is treatable although there were maybe 50 deaths a year from rotavirus in the united states um before the vaccine but in developing countries it is a deadly deadly illness and to see it not be in to be available in countries because of a presumed motivation that the company is going to make more money selling it in other markets is extremely disheartening and i would like to see a company like merck 
do whatever it can to make sure that it can uh, provide this vaccine for as many people as possible. Yeah, and y- and you would hope that in the absence of them just providing it, that there would be NGOs that would be able to fill in some of the gaps. Um, but th- the the thing that's difficult about vaccines that isn't true about our other pharmaceuticals is that vaccines are expensive to make and they're complicated to make. Um, th- and I don't know why because I'm not a microbiologist, but I have been told they are more complicated to make than other pharmaceuticals. Sure. And therefore, there are not generic versions of vaccines. Vaccines are made by a handful of pharmaceutical companies. Um, they require really large operations to make. And uh, so we can't just ship our generic version of the rotavirus vaccine to these countries where, you know, diarrheal illnesses such as rotavirus kill lots of kids easily um, every day. And so uh, there's some talk I've heard that other countries, pharmaceutical companies, will eventually come to fill in the gaps. I'm not sure. entirely clear. I, I, You know, the, the NPR story left a lot of questions for me. I'm not entirely clear what the plan is, if there is a plan. Um, You know, I'd like to think that Merck isn't heartless and just feeling like leaving people in the lurch. Sure. But it's there's certainly a lot of questions, and I I do hope that there's more journalism about this and there's more explanation about what's going on and what will happen and that someone somewhere is making plans to make sure children aren't dying yeah and it is you know as as though my first knee-jerk reaction is to be very critical there is certainly it's not as if rotavirus isn't a problem in china they have thousands of children who die a year from rotavirus i don't know what the mortality is comparatively between africa and china is off the top of my head but um you know so there is certainly a supply and demand constraints issues going on but man it's so difficult to think about just leaving kids in the lurch um when this disease is so deadly in africa in particular and you know i've I've mentioned this before but my um teenager now had rotavirus when he was 10 months old and he didn't i mean we went to the doctor's office uh because i was like what is this awful 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 diarrhea going on in our lives mm-hmm. um he didn't need to be hospitalized he didn't need an iv and it was still really terrible it was still like it still brought me to tears five years later when his little brother got vaccinated because i was because i was so happy he wouldn't have to suffer through this illness mm-hmm. and imagining not having access to 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 medical to medicine not having access to you know pedialyte not having access to so many things how that could have changed our outcome easily it's just not a stretch if you've seen rotavirus it's not a stretch to imagine how it could be so easily deadly yeah um near the end of the article it does talk about how unicef is working with other manufacturers because in the united states we have rota tech and rota ricks but there are other countries that make their own brands of rotavirus vaccine that are relatively cost uh if, uh, that are that are cheaper that are cheap and um can fill that gap that's being created but it's going to take a year or two of um 
transition time during which some kids are unfortunately going to get this disease and unfortunately some are going to die. Yeah, children will die. Yeah. It's just, is a, it goes to show how important really good vaccine supply is to the, the world. All right. Well, my around the web, I was going to phrase it as it's something happy, but as I start, you're not going to believe me. Okay. So last week, Dr. Paul Offit had a National oh, Press yes. Club yes, yes, event yes. about his book, Bad Medicine. And, you know, I've actually been to the National Press Club. It's it's a fun it's a fun place to go to. I like listening to National Press Club events on NPR. They usually are in the middle of the day, so you have to kind of be on purpose tuning in. I like listening to them. And I was excited for him that he was going to have a National Press Club event. We did know ahead of time though that the majority of the people who had signed up were anti-vaccine. Now, his book, Bad Medicine, isn't just about vaccines. It no, it's really also covers... about Bon Jovi. <laughs> it's this nice mashup of, of vaccination and like 80s, 90s rock songs. It's really great. <laughs> no, that's not true. It's, <laughs> it's not that bad medicine. Okay, it's... sorry. It's about all sorts of different ways that celebrity gets caught up in bath, bad health advice. And it's a, it's a really good book to read. The way that people consume information about health advice is, is broken in so many ways. So it really could have been an interesting discussion. It was derailed. It was absolutely completely about uh, vaccines. I watched the whole thing. Um, because some kindly anti-vaccine person made a video and put it online. And so I was actually very grateful about that. I watched the whole thing. And I will say this. This is where I think it's a good thing. I thought that Dr. Offit did a really lovely job of answering their questions. He -hmm. didn't get flustered. He didn't get angry. And he certainly could have gotten angry at several points. But he really just stayed in his zone. And he he just answered the questions. And I thought he did a, a nice job. I think for anyone who feels under pressure of answering questions from a hostile audience about vaccines, I, I think watching what Dr. Offit did you know, tracking down a video somewhere and watching it. Uh, and maybe I'll put the video in the show notes too. I, I think that is is really instructive on 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 how to and how to handle that and also how to answer some really difficult questions that anti vaxxers bring up. Um, not difficult for doctors, but difficult for, you know, your average parent. So that's uh well I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it seemed like a good thing, and it and you had uh, oh, our friend Del Bigtree was there, mm-hmm. and he was spouting off and and interrupting and shouting, calling him a liar and whatnot, and and uh, it, it seemed like there was a lot of action going on. <laughs> yeah, it certainly had a little bit of a circus atmosphere, which was unfortunate, but it uh, I think that he he really handled himself well which is amazing and kudos to Dr. Offit. I think in the end there are far more people who appreciate Dr. Offit and the work that he does and appreciate the fact that you know their kids don't have to get rotavirus because he he was able to um, come up with a vaccine for that. Then there are people who 
float these myths about him and make him out to be this nefarious bad guy. Uh-huh. And I think that for, I, I think my message about that is that for pediatricians in general, guys like you, you've certainly been um, the subject of some anti-vaccine ire. Um, and, you know, the, we're about to talk to Dr. Hotez and he delineates in his book some of the anti-vaccine blowback he's gotten. I think that it's, it's, it, you know, it, it's instructive for you guys to know that most people are on your side. That, you know, y- y- I think you probably have pretty pleasant encounters with parents of patients d- day in and d- day out, don't you? Yeah, and, you know, none of them are as few of them are as dramatic as that none, none are as dramatic as that but to see that to see the questions be- being able to be answered with such a plum is really m- inspiring i think that you know a lot of times with online and whatnot and these these very vocal advocates ignoring is the best policy and i've personally started to just change my approach you know as much as i'd love to argue i've started to just be like you know what if they're on my page they're going to get muted or blocked there's just no reason mm-hmm. for me to disseminate this person's dangerous opinions but you know when you're in that situation when there's people watching and you can to see somebody be able to handle those questions in a way that I think really does communicate the the truth and the science well is it, it makes me be like I want to be like that I want to be able to just be on the spot and handle things that way he does a fantastic job uh, with that and he demonstrated it that at uh, that at the at the um, presentation so nice work i do want to say to dr offit who i'm sure is listening to every podcast oh yeah um if you don't have on the back of that book a blurb that says bad medicine is what i need m dash <laughs> john bon jovi missed opportunity to to communicate science to the masses my friend <laughs> the quote's already out there oh okay well when we come back, we'll have our interview with Dr. Peter Hotez. We're joined now by Dr. Peter Hotez, who is a pediatrician and scientist and vaccinologist and all-around smart guy and an autism dad. He uh, currently works at the te- at Texas Children's and Baylor Medical Center in tropical ne- neglected tropical diseases. I think I got that right. Welcome, Dr. Hotez. Oh, thanks for having me today. And is it okay if we call you Peter? Yeah, that's fine. All right. You can call me Karen, not other guy Nathan. Yep. Um, I want to thank you for this book. I read this whole thing. It was it really, honestly, it was a page turner. I really wish that every parent um, who has a, an autistic child and every parent in general could read this book. I think it's instructive. I think there's a lot of hope in it. And I kind of want to start with the place from hope. So the first question I want to ask you is about Rachel. And I'm wondering if you can just tell me about the best part about being Rachel's dad. Well, you know, she teaches me uh, a lot of uh, humility. And I think in some ways she teaches me to be a more understanding and kind individual, not only a parent, uh, but also as a, uh, as an, as a boss, as a, as a colleague here in the medical center, and as a friend and colleague to scientists uh, all over the world, uh, who, you know, in, in, 
working in this field for almost 40 years now, you get to know a lot of uh, scientists and physicians working on neglected tropical uh, diseases and vaccines. And I think she's really helped me to be in a better place because of, because of who she is. In your book chapters, it seems to me that you kind of alternate between a chapter about Rachel and a chapter and including your experience in, in raising Rachel, and then a chapter that just kind of goes in sharp relief to either some history on the anti-vaccine movement or vaccines in general or the science and studies surrounding vaccines and um, and autism. Tell me a little bit about what what was it that started you made you interested in writing this book? Did this come from the 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 the, the father side, the the science the the scientist side or somewhere in between? So you're right. It's it's a unique book and I I don't think I've seen anyone another one quite like it where it's it's a science book uh, and it goes into some depth explaining the evidence showing there's no link between vaccines and autism and explains what autism is, how it's a series of developmental processes that begin prenatally well before kids ever see vaccines. But it also interweaves that personal story about, about Rachel. Uh, and I wrote it uh, for a very specific reason. Uh, I was watching with great alarm the the how well organized and effective the anti-vaccine movement had become uh, to the point where we were seeing measles outbreaks all over Europe and now the World Health Organization reports 40,000 measles cases just in the first half of 2018 alone we're seeing measles outbreaks in Israel and then uh, of course we were seeing measles outbreaks in, in the US and we started looking to with uh, and finding uh, evidence showing that there's large numbers of kids now not receiving their childhood vaccines all because of phony rhetoric from from the anti-vaccine lobby and in contrast I did not see a, a lot of strong advocacy coming out of our the federal government the federal agencies or the international health agencies and so I, I felt compelled to, to say something because I was so uniquely positioned being a vaccine scientist and an autism dad. So I, I enjoy writing for the public and speaking to the public. I'd written two other books prior to this on, on the topic of uh, neglected tropical diseases, but uh, this one was unique. I, I agree that this book is unique. I haven't read anything like it. Um, and I want to just go ahead and dig into something that as, you know, Nathan's a, a pediatrician um, and you are, you described yourself as an MB&B major, which is a uh, um, science-y. <laughs> I was a gem. Do you know what a gem is? Uh, is it geology and, well, you uh, go ahead. It's a good, good English major. <laughs> well, we, my, need our, we need our good English majors, too. They're also very important. Thank you. Um, I really take a lot of joy in working hard to understand science and then finding the best ways to communicate it. And I really felt like one of the most important premises of your book was not only that vaccines do not cause autism, and you don't leave a lot of um, you, you don't leave a lot of wiggle room in that. You're pretty clear about that. Um, but which, which we'll revisit because that's actually a very profound point you make. Yes, um, but um, what really struck me is that vaccines cannot cause autism. That there isn't a 
plausible mechanism that we could um, use to describe vaccines causing autism. So I'm wondering if you could, for people like me who were good English majors or maybe, you know, something else in the humanities or, you know, just general ed people, if you could describe for us how we know that vaccines can't cause autism. Well, before I, I'll do that, but before I do so, let me just make one other point, which is that, you know, if you looked at the Institute of Medicine report from 2012-2013, the way that was written was more or less, I'm paraphrasing, of course, you know, it says the preponderance of evidence to date cannot demonstrate any clear association between vaccines and autism, because that's how scientists generally speak. Right. And using that language, it left the door open for the anti-vaccine movement to make a statement that the 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 Institute of Medicine, which I'm a, a member of now, now it's called the National Academy of Members Medicine, one of the most prestigious uh, scientific organizations in the world, uh, was hedging and was unsure. And so one of the things I do in the book which really took me out of my comfort zone as a scientist is I speak in simple declarative sentences. Vaccines don't cause autism. Vaccines can't cause autism. That's not the way a scientist typically would speak. And I think it really gets to the heart of how we communicate science to the public. We're, we're not doing a very good job. And, and there's and there's a number of surveys to, to support that, including the fact that, and I talk about it in the book, that the vast majority of Americans cannot name a living scientist, or the fact that so few scientists are on, on social media or blog about their science. And this book is, a, is part of a correction, a correction to kind of remind my colleagues that we have to just stop writing and speaking for each other, that we, that there's an obligation now because it's been enabling for anti-science movements to rise to really re reach out to the public and speak in ways that they can understand. So what we what we have found in the in the book is that um, you know we can we had did these large the, uh, the scientific community has performed en enormously large studies that ultimately involve more than a million children uh, looking at uh, comparing children who've been vaccinated versus children who've not, but also doing the converse, children who have autism uh, versus children who do not or are, who are not on the autism spectrum. And it's quite clear that there's no difference uh, whether or not uh, they've been vaccinated in terms of whether they're on the autism spectrum. So I, I kind of go through that in, in fairly detail in a whole chapter, and it takes some time because one of the things the anti-vaccine lobby does is they keep moving the goalposts. At first they said it was the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and I go into the evidence showing there's no link between what's called the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and autism. And then another group stood up and said, no, 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 it's not the MMR vaccine, it's the Thimerosal preservative that used to be in in vaccines, and I debunk that. And then there's a group alleging, no, it's because we're spacing vaccines too close together, and I debunk that. And now the latest flavor of the month is uh, aluminum contained in vaccines, and that doesn't hold in hold any uh, scientific weight either. So it takes time to go through that, and then I go through a 
in fair detail what we know about the modern science of autism, showing how the the changes in the brains of, of kids with autism are are different even uh, early on in pregnancy, which is very important because it's well before they receive vaccines. And I also try to some extent talk about uh, um, the the it's not just the autism; it's for many kids and now adults it's the associated intellectual disabilities because the autism community appropriately is very sensitive to what they term neurodiversity and the, and one of the real problems with the anti-vaccine movement is they talk about people on the autism spectrum like they're uh, like they're uh, uh, afflicted by some sort of horrible uh, 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 illness or disease and, and I try to demystify that a little bit as well. I, I think you do a lovely job of that. And I think that, you know, Nathan and I were talking about how much we were getting wrapped up in Rachel's story. Mm -hmm. I think that talking about autism, but also talking about Rachel as an important person and a person who deserves, you know, all, all the support that we can muster for her instead of, you know, funneling our resources toward a, a fruitless pursuit that's already been disproven. I think you do a lovely job of that. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I know that Nathan's got a question, too, so I'm just going to let him ask it. Well, <laughs> well I'll, just, I'll just say, you know, one of the, the things that's, that the anti-vaccine lobby does is, you know, anytime you try to talk about autism or individuals on the autism spectrum, they immediately shift the dialogue to vaccines as they, they suck the oxygen out of the room. So as a result, you know, they prevent us from talking about more important things like job coaching and, and special services for children and adults on the autism spectrum. So that's yet another way that the anti-vaccine groups have been so damaging. You did a fair amount of talking in some of these chapters looking at the anti-vaccine movement um you looked at uh california you looked at the somali uh population in minnesota you also talked a bit about texas and i don't think we talk enough uh about what's going on in texas in terms of vaccination rates and the anti-vaccine movement would you tell us a little bit about what's going on in your neck of the woods uh and what changes need to be made to to improve things yeah, we're in a scary situation here in the state of Texas, uh, and that was another stimulus for writing the book because uh, I had come down here seven years ago to launch our National School of Tropical Medicine and our vaccine center. And one of the things that we uh, I've became aware of was this dramatic increase in the number of kids who were not receiving their school vaccines because parents were opting them out because Texas is still one of 18 states that allows non-medical exemptions for reasons of personal or philosophical belief. Uh, so, and, and the numbers are rising dramatically. So there's 50, we know there's at least 57,000 kids in Texas not getting their vaccines and they tend to be especially concentrated in the Austin area and some of the North Texas towns and cities. And those are the ones we know about. We don't know anything about the th more than 300,000 homeschooled kids in the state of Texas. So it's likely we have over 100,000 kids not getting vaccinated. So the consequences are pretty terrible. We're, they're now at risk for measles and other uh, childhood infectious diseases. Uh, the CDC tells us that of the 200 kids that died in the measles and the influenza epidemic of 2018, the vast majority were not vaccinated despite recommendations. And now uh, the 
you know, when we look at the cervical cancer vaccine numbers, it's pretty scary. Fewer than 40% of teenage girls are getting their cervical cancer vaccine. So we're uh, unnecessarily subjecting them, a whole generation of girls and women, to the suffering of cervical cancer. All, all because of, of garbage, all because of phony rhetoric coming out of the anti-vaccine lobby. So do you think it's a coincidence that Andrew Wakefield set up shop in Austin and Texas began having the same, the, these issues around the same time? It, it's, it's certainly quite possible that there's a link. The, the problem is it's, you know, we don't have a, do not have a lot of investigative journalism trying to really dig in to the anti-vaccine movement. I mean, who's, who's, who's paying for all the organization required to put up these phony websites to uh, to organize everything on social media to arrange uh, showings of of this horrible so-called documentary vaxxed from cover-up to catastrophe this takes a lot of organization and money and there's no transparency as to where that's coming from I'm glad you brought up vaxxed. One of the things <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to bring I wanted to, when I was about to say when I was about when I interrupted before and I was like speaking of declarative statements, I can I can I recite the declarative statement about vaxxed in here? I'm gonna censor it a little bit. Is that okay with you? Sure. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna and then uh, and then Karen can ask your question. But you say I tend not to use much salty language in my public remarks, but in order to describe Vaxxed, I make an exception. In my public lectures, I plainly assert that the movie Vaxxed is compelling, convincing, and total BS. Which is not say BS. <laughs> it is less a movie and more a propaganda device to rally unknowing parents toward the pseudoscience of the anti-vaccine movement. Never have I seen such a blatantly dishonest and exploitative piece of nonsense. Take it away, not, Karen. Not a lot of wiggle room in that statement. No, that is a declarative statement. What, what would Roger Ebert say, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I am glad you brought up Vaxxed because it's one of the things that upset me about the movie, and it upset you too, was that they really used children at their worst moments to make the point, to make points in the movie. And um, it contrasted with, you know, you don't sugarcoat problems that Rachel has and the issues that she's had with the schooling that she's been given. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, you know, how, how does... How do scientists talk about autism in ways that doesn't dehumanize autistic people, but still gets them what they need? Well, that's a great question. And quite honestly, I'm still on the learning curve. This is, you know, I'm a vaccine scientist. I'm an expert in infectious tropical diseases. Uh, uh, up until this book, I haven't really written a lot about autism. So I'm still learning uh, what, what's both effective and what's both uh, accurate and also what's not offensive because as I've mentioned before the uh, uh, there's a, a group of individuals on the autism spectrum a pretty substantial community of people on the autism spectrum who in some cases they identify themselves as the autistics and they point out that they're just different it's not necessarily a, a bad thing to be on, on the autism spectrum and one of the things that I try to distinguish in many respects it's not Rachel's autism per se that 
uh, creates challenges for her biggest challenges. It's really, in her case, it's her low, very profoundly low performance uh, IQ. So her intellectual disabilities, this is what is uh, is uh, really holding her back in, in, in many ways. And I, and I try to make that point. And, you know, I think you have the benefit of uh, understanding science and so seeing seeing the you know autism disorders in a scientific context and seeing Rachel in a family context and and being able to discern all of that but for a lot of parents whose children are autistic they don't have the benefit of having that deep understanding of science and I'm wondering if you see those parents who get influenced by the anti-vaccine movement who have autistic children if you see this inability of the scientific community to properly communicate with them as a huge part of the problem as far as letting them be sort of engulfed in the anti-vaccine movement yeah i i do and i try to i do this in the book but but it takes a lot of pages to do it so so one of the problems is it's not a 30 second soundbite um it it takes time so one of the things that we've you know doing my research for the book is you know you know it's let rachel like a lack of a lot of many like many children on the autism spectrum are diagnosed between the first and second year of life more towards the second year of life, so around 18 to 24 months of age, according to the CDC, just like Rachel was. And and I report on evidence coming from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Autism Center showing that the clinical expression of autism, which is often first apparent at 19 months of age or 18 months of age, coincides with a big increase in brain volume expansion. And that's important because it's around that time that parents will also remember that their child might have gotten a vaccine in the last couple of months and then they go on the internet and they see all these uh, anti-vaccine websites of parents claiming their child was quote vaccine injured and that's the term that they often use but in fact when you go to the studies that were conducted by the University of North Carolina they actually can go back even though they're seeing big brain volume expansion in 18 months of age they can go back to six months of age and see and predict now with do they say 90 percent accuracy which of those kids will go on to develop autism and now studies from University of California San Diego and elsewhere take it all the way back prenatally so it's it's clearly a developmental progression that first begins in utero first begins in pregnancy and that takes time to explain that it was going to happen whether or not their, their children were vaccinated and that's borne out by all of the epidemiologic evidence that I also cite in the previous chapter but it's but it's complicated so um, and I try to try to s simplify it as much as possible without either dumbing it down or without sounding condescending and I think this is the, the part that I worked hardest on in the book and and I think one of the best compliments I ever got from a, a reviewer or a, a commentator was Peter you have the ability of explaining complex scientific concepts not only by not dumbing it down but also not trying not trying to be condescending and, and, and that, that's that's something I'm very proud of I think that your book is uh, I think its structure and the way that it's written 
I think that it would appeal and be interesting to a wide range of people. I'm curious who you have in mind as the people who most need to read it. Is it kind of parents in your mind? Is it providers? Is it scientists? Who's who's the most, if you could give the this book into the hands of one group of people, who would it be? Well, I think you hit all three populations I'm trying to reach. So first of all, I tried to reach the parents, vaccine-hesitant parents. Uh, so I hope this book winds up in various pediatricians' waiting rooms uh, because uh, parents, you know, the the in, in the book I cited some research that said there's 400, more than 400 anti-vaccine websites out there. So then there's not much countering it. So I'm hope you know, and I think a lot of parents are not deeply dug in. Some are, and you're not going to reach those. But the majority, you know, have just heard something unsavory about vaccines on the internet, uh, on 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 social media, or from friends or family. And this book is designed for them to explain to them why they. They don't need to worry why why vaccines and why vaccines are so important. But then I also try to reach the pediatricians, the family docs, and the nurse nurse practitioners around the front lines, because parents are now reading garbage on the internet and coming in, marching into the office with all of these irrelevant facts or factoids uh, or or blatant untruths, and the pediatricians. Don't know how to don't have the talking points to to refute what they're saying. So one of the things I do in the book is I have an epilogue which actually provides talking points for pediatricians and other healthcare providers to uh, to refute some of the most common assertions from coming from the anti-vaccine groups. And then third, it's it's to talk to scientists as well because they're often not up on the, on some of the latest trends and issues. So I'm hoping. It, it touches all three groups. What is your greatest hope for this book? What do you really hope it accomplishes? The real dream for the book is that it begins shifting this national dialogue, which is trending in the wrong direction. That you know, all of the trends say something ominous is happening. That we're seeing a big rise in non-medical vaccine exemptions, especially in uh, some of the western states, that parents are increasingly questioning the safety of vaccines and worried that vaccines cause autism and, and other terrible things. We're seeing people, and especially children, not getting their flu vaccines. So in addition to their childhood vaccines, they're not getting their flu vaccines. And we're seeing a, a generation of girls and women denied protection against cervical cancer. Uh, I, I want to turn that around. And, you know, that's a lot to ask from a book. Uh, you know, as, as much as a book could have any influence over anything, that would be my hope that it creates a, a paradigm shift and and maybe not only in the US but what we're seeing in Europe because I think the consequences are enormous. Uh, we're starting to see now this anti-vaccine movement, this American-style, European-style anti-vaccine movement trickle into some of the large middle-income countries like Brazil and Nigeria and India. And you can imagine the, the disaster when we start seeing declines in vaccine coverage there. We could even reverse global goals and Millennium Development Goals and Sustainable Development Goals. So I'm hoping that this is the beginning of a turnaround. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me, and I uh, appreciate you giving attention to the book and this very important issue. 
Thanks everybody for listening in and subscribing to Vax Talk. If you aren't a subscriber, please do subscribe. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Podbean and Google Play, and there's a little video about how to be a subscriber. So we're everywhere. We're everywhere. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines at voicesforvaccines.org. I'm Dr. Nathan Boonster, a pediatrician here at Blank Children's in Des Moines, Iowa. Find me on Facebook or find me on Twitter at the handle at PedsGeekMD or my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day and be well. Bye-bye.